for all my tech friends, why the heck would you leave an awesome job as a tech exec to go full time into real estate? It's a little crazy, but it could actually work out. And it actually did for Divya, where she manages over $75 million in real estate. And so we're going to ask her why she did that, how she did that, all coming up next. Welcome to the Cashflow Happy Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Baldovino. And on this show, you can join us live as we interview investors and share how they are increasing their cash flow. So grab a drink and let's get into it. Divya, how are you doing today? I'm good, Josh. How are you? I'm good. Well, thanks so much for joining. <laughs> I know that it's getting a little bit later where you're at, but just for our guests today, give us the quick background story. Where are you? What is your background? All of that good stuff. Absolutely. Well, super excited to be here. Uh, glad to have a great audience here we are talking to today. So I'm actually in Dallas, Texas, in Central, so it's about 7.30 for me, and uh, I've been in technology for the last 20 years and recently I quit my corporate job to want to move into real estate full time. And it's it's been a great adventure. There are times when I think about, well, do I really need additional sleep? Because this is just so much fun. Let's, you know, let's keep doing this. So been doing that uh, in my family. I have two kids, uh, nine and 11. So two boys and so having, you know, juggled and been a corporate exec and then having children. And then I have uh, my mom who I take care of as well. So lots of fun things happening. Definitely a full life. And uh, it's it's kind of good to be chatting with you today. Yeah. I mean, for us, I live in San Jose. We host meetups here. And so a lot of both the physical group that we've created as well as the virtual group is based here in California, obviously working in tech. So just because this episode is a little bit different because you've had such great success in the corporate sector, run us real quick. What's the background there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, believe it or not, I mean, I'm a total nerd. Uh, I may not look like it at times, but uh, I actually started in technology. I was programming since I was in seventh grade and I started my career at Target Technology. Uh, I was an intern as a freshman in college. And kind of went up through the ranks. Um, I had multiple different companies where I worked as uh, engineering director, and then kind of was promoted. You know, did work at big companies like United Health Group. So, in all of that, responsible for large digital engineering teams. Uh, my most fun story from one of my past jobs is uh, I was leading Target.com, and I had to. Uh, I was doing the Black Friday Cyber Monday sales. And taking ownership of Target.com meant is you are there overnight, you know, and all the sales kind of hit. And uh, so I worked straight 25 hours, which was really fun. I, I remember taking an hour nap in between in one of the conference rooms. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of fun and joy in that. But at the same time, I got to a point in my career where, uh, where I needed to kind of think about some things differently. Can I ask, and feel free not to answer this, but what yeah. volume does Target do online on Black Friday? Like, how much is that? So um, from a revenue perspective, again, of course, that changes year over year. So what I can share is uh, one of the numbers that I love is um, the peak of Cyber Monday. Uh, and this is four years ago. Peak of Cyber Monday, we had hit 170,000 orders per minute. Per minute. So 
all our systems needed to scale to that level in order to really make sure, you know, everything was working smoothly. So we had a great team, you know, we had AI and kind of some of the tools all set up, ready to go and just kind of tracking everything as it was going. That's I think everybody, funny. yeah, I think everybody knows about when target.com went down, which was, you know, three years prior to that. So I think target got really burned bad, you know, after that. And we wanted to make sure everything was working smoothly. So it's been really cool. fun kind of watching that. Well, congratulations to your team and to you. I'm sure my Thank wife you. probably was almost like 10 orders of those. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I was probably like 50. I mean, I was sitting there. I was like, this is great. Let's hit higher numbers. And I'm ordering some boots. I mean, they're on great sale. <laughs> well, awesome. So how did you transition into from tech into real estate? What's that story? Yeah, so... You know, last year, I actually was writing my, so this would be very fascinating for a lot of people. As you kind of come through that January through March timeframe, everybody thinks the first thing is Q1 is taxes. And I was doing my taxes uh, and realized that I had paid a decent chunk of money in taxes. And yet I was still writing another big check in order for me to kind of basically pay off all the remaining taxes for the year. And that really kind of hit me hard. It's like, it's great that I'm making the amount of money I'm making, but you give back about 40%. And I just didn't have any other ways to kind of save on those taxes. So uh, the, the nerd on, in me kind of really thought about, okay, can I take the fact that I'm working 60 hours and then I am paying 40% in taxes. So the net is 60%. And I went and reduced that into hourly rate. And it was just fascinating to watch. It's like, um, uh, I think there's better ways to make you know money than kind of you're giving up 70, uh, 70 hours of your life and then your hourly rate is much lower. So that was kind of the tipping point initially for me for that journey. So I started to really just talk with the people around me, just understand, you know, what are the different investment vehicles that they have seen and done? And uh, Jenny Gu, she's, uh, her and I went to MBA together. She is a partner at Vertical Street Ventures. And I saw a post from her on LinkedIn. And this is, you know, almost two years ago. And um, she had quit her corporate job. She was executive at P&G, quit her corporate job, was able to spend more time with her kids, was able to take care of the family. And still did that in, you know, not too many hours. And for me, I was just fascinated by that thought that you're really living the life by the design you chose, you know, so how can I really think about that? So that was a tipping point for me to really get started and learning, you know, about uh, real estate. Well, that's an interesting way to really think about it, because a lot of people won't then take into the account what taxes you're paying and what breaks are there as a real estate professional. So that yeah, that's yes. also, I'm sure, is significant, which actually, in all fairness, right before the show, Divya did say that she wants to go ahead and break that down. So in a little bit later, yeah. we'll go ahead and break all of it down. Maybe we'll even do a little a, a case study sample of what it could look like. Absolutely. But what does your portfolio look like right now? So I currently have three uh, apartment buildings. Two are in Arizona. One is in Texas. And we recently actually closed on one of the deals in Texas. Um, about 500, a little over 550 doors in total. Uh, and the fun part is, and I'm happy to share kind of details about the, the property that we have in, uh, in Texas is it was 152 apartment building, uh, apartment units, and we got it for 126,000 per door. So we got a really good deal on it. This is just this year. 
Uh, wow. Still not able to find another deal like that. And uh, we closed it and we we're projecting to kind of about 1.9-ish returns for our investors in three to five years. That's solid. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Did you jump straight into multifamily or did you do the you know, single family duplex things first before jumping in? Yeah, that's a great question, Josh. So I did have a, you know, I was part of that 2007-8 timeframe and all the house prices went down. That's when I was um, looking to potentially move up in our houses. I was pregnant with our first child. So of course, you're looking to, you know, move into a bigger house. And we couldn't sell our townhome. So we became what everybody calls the accidental landlords. <laughs> so we ended up keeping our town home at that time. And, you know, it kind of learned, it taught us a bunch, you know, we learned a lot from it. Um, but there were also a lot of expenses and the, the effort and amount it took to kind of take care of that property. So last year, we sold that single family after, you know, after having that for almost 15 years, we took all the profits that we had made, and we put it into a real estate investment, because all the gains I would have had, I actually could reduce that with the bonus depreciation. So, you know, we talked about kind of the tax reduction. And that was another big thing. I started out with single family, we made some money on it, but then we still didn't have a way to reduce the, the gains that we had from it until I had actually learned more about multifamily. So that's where I switched from single family to multifamily. So already in the first 10 minutes, you've mentioned of why you just switch into real estate because of taxes. So I think I already know the reason. Uh, and just to break down that sale, when did you bought that townhouse uh, for how much? So I bought that house for $170,000 uh, okay. in 2005. And, and we sold, sold it, it for about $280,000-ish, okay. $280,000-ish, roughly there, fifteen, almost 15 years later. So yeah. the, the gain is, is good, but it's not great. And then mm -hmm. the, the expenses and all the HVAC, you know, HVAC required replacement. We had a bunch of other fixes that needed to be done. So I think we may have truly net gained maybe 60000 Okay. Um, after all the expenses, but then we would have still paid taxes on it. And I think yeah. for me, that was just frustrating. It's like, I worked so hard. I, I, I took a phone call. Actually, we, we were at Disney with my kids and uh, the garage door stops working. And I'm like, okay, kids, you go on, you know, the rides here. I am, you know, talking to the tenant and kind of trying to figure some of that out. So that wasn't really fun. And I think that was a aha moment for us too. It's like, do we really want to be doing this and kind of missing out on the good fun stuff with our family? Yes. Well, I, I guess that's safe to say that you will not get a short-term rental because that's probably one of the worst things that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's an asset class. I'm definitely at this point or this stage in life, not interested in now, you know, let's say 10 years from now, kids are away <laughs> and I'm financially free and have a little extra time to chat up with people. Yes, let's do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the hard part, if you listen to this and you're thinking about short-term rentals, most guests check in on Friday and Saturday, which means that your problems will always happen on the weekend. Yeah. Very different than multifamily, yeah. I'd assume, especially if you have your you know, professional property manager. Most of those happen during the week because they also work business hours. So Absolutely. your weekend with family, a little more free. So why did you end up going into multifamily out of all the asset classes? Yeah, so the there's quite a few asset classes available, and I'll talk about two or three specifically. But the you talked about short term rental and the reasons why, like the, the same reasons you have, are the reasons why I didn't want to go into that. 
The multifamily, the thing that I love about it is the stability, right? So you're getting these renters, it's for a year at a time. And then, especially if you can go up to about 80 to 100 units, then you can have property management teams kind of manage it for you. And at that place, you know, you're not kind of doing the triple T's as we talk about, you know, in our space, the toilet termites and tenants. So you don't have to worry about that. So getting a property management team kind of working with you to take care of the day-to-day things, I think that's been incredible to see. The other thing is kind of the stability of the asset class. So for me, that's really been cool to see, uh, you know, if you have the right location, if you have the right asset, and if you have the right property management team, if you get a good purchase price to start with, and you know that the area is going to grow, and I'll take an example of my current apartment building, it's, it's in Dallas, it's a booming market. And so that's kind of why we stuck with that asset class. Um, and then, you know, when you kind of compound it with location, we have a million people a year moving to Texas at this point in time. So it's a huge movement of people and we don't have enough apartment buildings here. So that, you know, the separation between the, the supply and demand, I mean, that's quite large. And that's kind of the reason why I still really like this asset class. I love it. And one of the things when you think about starting to invest in multifamily, for most people that are roadblocks, it's not like a single family house, or if you have a decent job, you can qualify for the loan or use the mortgage to then offset uh, whatever your debt to income ratio may be to get the mortgage. But for multifamily, you kind of have to have a little bit of experience or somebody else on your team. So how did you combat that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I have talked to actually a couple uh, recent investors about that is single family. It's great. You can get started. But at the same time, if you're looking at the interest rate and how you get a loan today, you you still have to bring about 30 percent to 40 percent down payment. That's just kind of how it's running today. And even if you get, say, a $300,000 single family home, you're looking at close to eighty to 90000 as down payment. Now, to get into most of those multifamily deals at this point in time, you can get into 50000 usually as the minimum investment price and still get higher benefits without having to do any work behind the scenes for you. So like even just I'm a, I'm a total geek for numbers, right? So mm-hmm. if you just look at the basic numbers here, one, you're bringing less to the table and you're, you know, you're getting a higher return and you don't have to be involved in day to day maintenance or any of the work. So those numbers just work out really well. I mean, everyone's end goal at the end of the day for every single syndicator that I've talked to is eventually they just want to be the passive partner. Being the active partner is still active work. And at the end of the day, we actually want mailbox money and not having to do anything. But you have an active role in the deals that you manage. So how did you get your foot in the door there? Yeah, for sure. So I think identifying kind of our strengths. So I work with a couple of partners. I'm part of a mastermind group as well. But I think one of the the great things about some of the real estate meetups and conferences, which is where we met, you know, is you get to meet different people with different backgrounds and skill sets. And you definitely need to understand one, what are your strengths as a partner that you can provide to other people? And then two, are you partnering with the right people with different skill sets? So, you know, in multifamily, we kind of look at those three or four big roles you know, folks trying to do the investor relations, then the asset management, and then, you know, there's some more operational roles kind of underneath that. So there's, there's all of that underwriting due diligence. I mean, we have kind of some of those big pieces. I think one of the things for me, and this kind of comes from my technology executive background as well, is having managed large teams. For me, it's always identifying the roles and responsibilities and making sure 
do we have each of the puzzle pieces in order to mm -hmm. make a great team? So that's kind of where I started to identify, you know, partners and what was I lacking or missing that I, you know, my partners can help me. What was your role? So my role is investor. Yeah. So my role is investor relations. Actually, I got off the call with uh, about five co-GPs today and we are, you know, making sure that they have understanding of what's happening in the, in the building. Do we have the right updates going to the investors and then kind of even sharing, Hey, here's what we are seeing from financials and numbers. And are they matching the pro forma in all of our underwriting? So kind of giving that visibility, not only to investors, but then our, you know, the GPs as well. Okay, so you are the one that has to issue either all the good news or all the bad news. Yes, yes. But th thankfully, you know, this is kind of where if you've done the due diligence and underwriting up front, I think some of the later parts become a little bit easier. The only unknowns tend to be when managing some of these properties is mm -hmm. did the seller disclose everything about, say, the rent roll? Are all the people on the rent roll, like, are there, uh, you know, delinquencies that we need to kind of take care of. So we did have some, thankfully it was only about 10 to 15 units out of the 150. Mm -hmm. So it's not a huge number. It's actually very decent. Um, but you know, there's some of those kind of starting things uh, to think about. Yeah. And could you break down a sample of what the numbers are for that deal? So from a number perspective, it's a 152 unit apartment building, 126 K for the, the, the cost we got for per door and mm -hmm. roughly in Dallas right now, we are looking at about 140 to 150,000 per door. So yeah. uh, we got a decent buying rate. Uh, we were able to kind of do a, a rate cap along with an interest rate of about 5.6%. So we got a really good deal. We were able to lock that in earlier in March before all the two other increases that came on later this year. So we were able to do that. Um, and uh, vacancy uh, is, uh, I, or I should say occupancy is close to about 95 to 96%. So we're still hovering right about in that percentage. It may be just a little bit lower now with some delinquent rent, uh, you know, the, the cleanup that we are doing, but we'll be back up to 95 years soon. And what year is the property? The year is 1982 is what I want to say. Don't quote me on it. <laughs> so what's the quick plan on that? Is it a... Uh... Hopefully not too major updates needed for each unit or what are you Yeah, guys? so not not many updates, but we are looking to kind of give it that fresh, clean look. I think end of the day, you know, the the part that I love about multifamily is the win-win situation. So mm -hmm. the fact is that you're getting to update the the units and we are looking at roughly maybe five to seven thousand per unit that we are looking okay. to do upgrades. And uh, from that, you know, the goal is then when you increase the rent, even up between 100 to 300, depending on kind of the, what the unit type is, mm -hmm. um, the rent, the people living there, they're just ecstatic to kind of be living in space that is new and fresh. And, you know, they, they're excited, you know, with the energy that even fresh coat of paint brings in. Some yeah. of the updates specifically would be like uh -huh. the, we have new floors, new kitchen okay. cabinets, new countertops, new appliances. <laughs> yeah, there's you know, a lot of people think, you know, the slumlord terms, but I think on the commercial side, especially when you have new ownership, they're highly incentivized to then make everything look better to then hopefully bump the rates to then eventually exit versus yeah. a lot of times, sometimes on that single family hold side, you hear these horror stories of owners who don't touch it for years. And that's really where it comes from. So yeah, yeah, you couldn't be more right. Yeah, yes. 
You know, even with that, I think one of the things that I absolutely love uh, is kind of the community outreach. Now I'm not talking talking to just one, you know, set of family. I have 150 families. So mm-hmm. we we are, you know, doing, we did a pizza party at the pool, brought all the kids together, did a little barbecue. So it kind of really builds that community as well. I mean, this is truly a community. It's 150 families living together in one space, right? So how do you kind of bring together, even help them build some relationships? Well, solid. That sounds, pizza parties are always fun. Actually, I still live in an yes. apartment here in San Jose and they had a boba <laughs> party last week. So Ooh, that <laughs> other communities awesome. are doing it too. Yeah. Well, let's pivot gears now because one of the other things I wanted to talk about was personal finance. Okay. And investing is really interesting, but I'm always just curious to just see how people either spend their money and or invest their money. Were you always a savvy saver or when did that click for you? Um. Yes and yes. Um, <laughs> so the the saver part in me, I think it just comes from my humble beginnings. I you know so that's kind of I I started my college. I literally had additional hundred dollars to spend a month. So mm-hmm. I you know having kind of not having start with a lot of money and then kind of mm-hmm. moving on. It always has helped me realize you know what's most important in life and kind of what do you really need versus the wants. So that's helped me kind of save from the beginning. Okay. The we we do get carried away, in my opinion, you know, as you move on, I think that American dream has shifted a little, I think we mm-hmm. all are starting to understand that, you know, the white picket fence and the house and a fancy car and, you know, fancy clothes, I think it takes you so far, but it makes you also not be able to use some of the things because you're working so many hours to be able to afford some of that, right? So from a final personal financing standpoint, my goal is always to kind of talk about, hey, how can you start saving some money and then mm-hmm. invest? And then we get when you get some returns from those investments, that's where you can get, be like, hey, let me treat myself with something little. Again, don't go extravagant. You know, don't live beyond your means, but really think about what are the things that are truly making you happy. And I think when we all boil it down, things that make us happy are usually not those very expensive cars. They're usually not those very fancy, you know, things that we are looking at. Comes down to smaller things in life, like having a couple free hours to go walk down the beach. That is definitely worth it. I can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm in San Jose, so I'm not necessarily walking distance. It'd be pretty far a walk, but (laughs) the time freedom is definitely worth a little bit more than, I don't know, whatever some of the luxuries could be. But before we dive into how you learn about personal finance, random question mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What has been both the worst purchase you've ever made? And then on the flip side, what has been a recent luxury that you've splurged in? Oh boy. I don't know if I have an answer for either one. The only reason I say that I'm just not a spender. So I think the the most luxurious thing I've spent on is like a really fancy vacation. So like spent, <laughs> like eight or $9,000 on all inclusive that we went on and it was for like five days. So just something really, really fancy um, mm-hmm. like that. Um, there, there are quite a few things that I probably have purchased that kind of said, I was like, did I really need that? But it ends up being gadgets and I'm like, Ooh, tools, you know, like, so <laughs> I end up getting excited about that stuff. Thankfully, most of those are not very expensive, but yeah. Yeah. I but you like- always go back and like, yeah, I don't need that. <laughs> my worst purchases always end up, and I remember this even just from, from maybe my early 20s, of buying something that was cheaper versus spending maybe a little bit more to get something that's yes. higher quality. And then you end up buying both. Yes. So. yes, yes. 
Yeah, that's a good point. So now like my rule is I, I do try to practice the minimalism, you know, kind of some of the principles. If I'm bringing two new things in the house, I'm trying to take two old things out of the house. So I do practice some of that. Okay, that's smart. Well, you were telling me about a calculation for hourly rate. So let's break yeah. that down. Everyone wants fire, right? The financial freedom. Yes. And so right. you have a, a little calculation. Let's, what would be a good sample salary to use? Yeah. Wanted to start maybe is, is 150K a, like a decent average or something? That is a good number. Yeah. I almost okay. want to like share with you one of my LinkedIn posts about the hourly rate. I actually calculated the whole thing out. Um, so I will share that with you as well after this so we can put and put it in the links for our listener. Okay. Yeah, share that. I'll drop it in the description, but let's walk through some of the numbers together. So you were saying, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. So let's take an example of 150,000 as the salary, okay. starting salary. And let's say, you know, people are, and I'll just pick a role level. So let's say this is a senior manager role in a corporate America role. So that would be kind of pretty decent salary. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just assume it's kind of mid-range. I wouldn't go to California or New York salaries. I'll kind of keep it mid-range. Yeah. So 150,000, you know, let's say even the taxes, it's conservative. So you pay 30% taxes on it. Mm -hmm. Now you're at that senior manager level. Thankfully, hopefully you can still work at a 40 to 45 hours. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the high level to think about. So you can calculate kind of the number of hours you would work in a year, divide that by 150, and that gives you an hourly rate for okay. you for that year. Now, let's say you get promoted and now you're a director and usually directors tend to make maybe 15 to 20% higher than that. So yeah. let's say now your salary is 180 and maybe with bonus, you end up making, you know, 200,000. Yay. I mean, you know, super exciting. Mm -hmm. But the number of hours you're working now because you have multiple teams under you, uh, you have more responsibilities. And now you've kind of jumped into from middle, manage in, middle management to almost executive leadership kind of levels. You're starting to go in go in that direction. Yeah. So with that in mind, you'd probably be working average 60 hours a week. Okay. So, so kind of the rough way to think about it is, you know, you went from 150,000 salary to 200,000, which is maybe a 25% increase, but the number of hours you're working is gone up by 50%. Dude, here's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to actually, I, I pull up a spreadsheet. So I want to actually show some numbers and this will be real rough here. So if yeah, you're watching yeah. this, uh, if you're listening to this on a podcast, this is more excuse for you to go onto YouTube to look through our calculations. That way we can work through it live. But here I have got promoted as a tech exec. Great salary. 60 hours a week, 52 weeks. That's 3,120 uh, 3, hours a year, which is a lot more than your 40-hour work week. That's for sure. Right. Yep. Yep. So that yeah. definitely does kind of see so yeah, how you can break that down even to your hourly rate. So then you take that. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. $200,000 per year divided by 3,000 hours, which is really only $64 an hour for an exec. But we didn't even take it. We didn't account for taxes yet, right? We didn't account for taxes. It's because your taxes are now higher because it's probably 35% now instead of 30%. Yeah, so I'll go times 0.65%, which means you're really at $41 an hour. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of sad. <laughs> that's just sad. <laughs> I okay. think my kids probably at some point in time will make more on social media or something than, than I was working that many hours. <laughs> that is true. Influencers, and I do the influencer buy for the companies that I work for, and we pay a pretty yeah. penny. So 
exactly. All right, so you did this calculation you know, for yourself and you realize, okay, that's not as great as I thought it was actually. It's not, it's not. And, you know, we do get caught up in the hype of kind of the big roles and the titles. And then you realize, mm -hmm. you know, we've kind of just, you have the golden handcuffs and yeah. you realize, you know, how much is your time and effort worth to you? And then are you willing to pay for it? So, yeah. you know, one of the things we were talking about personal financing, and I would love to just kind of come back to that, you know, when you take your hourly account, you know, hourly rate in account, and you go back to personal finance and say, mm -hmm. You know, we were taught to save 10, 15% and, you know, save it in our 401ks and then be able to retire on it. Reality is, if you look at those numbers, you, you really can't retire on the money that is saved on those 401ks. You can't just close your eyes and be like, yeah, it'll be a good number. I can't do that. Uh, yeah. You know, so understanding those numbers, really figuring out what are your yearly expenses and even in retirement, can you make that? And that is where, you know, some of the very specific personal financing and you taking control of your finances can really help. So if you are mentoring and talking to younger tech employees today who, you know, start off with a decent salary with probably some awesome equity as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. Where would you think, you know, in a quick 30 seconds, what should they be thinking about? Um, so I would say save as much as you can, mm -hmm. you know, don't splurge on things that you don't need. So focus on kind of taking that savings and investing. And if you're okay. able to get any real estate, you know, specific benefits that are related to say bonus depreciation, which we still have this year, about 80%, mm -hmm. see how you can maximize that. And end of the day, focus on uh, actual asset investing. I like stocks, but stocks, there's just a little control, you know, very little control yeah. on that. So so that's kind of what I'd recommend to them. So what is your personal current mix between stocks and real estate? What would you say? So I was zero on real estate and stocks 100% until mm -hmm. I would say 18 months ago. Now okay. I'm closer to about 30% in real estate and stocks. And my goal is really by end of this year to early next year with the new deals as I'm finding uh, to really move up to that 50-50% uh, for each one. And so for your deals now, are you taking a line of credit from your stocks or how are you funding those? So I've been able to thankfully sell some of my stocks and then mm -hmm. I'll be able to reinvest it. Uh, the good news is the, the gains from my stock, uh, stock, I can actually still offset it with my passive income of, you know, the passive depreciation mm -hmm. that I get. So that kind of works up really well for my advantage uh, to my advantage as well. Awesome. I mean, that sounds like you have a great plan. Obviously had a good base as well. And it's just these weird personal finance things that no one wants to talk about. No one wants to say how you should be really yeah. investing your money and what the real result is of some of those investments. Where did you learn it all from? You know, I, I wish I learned it sooner. And that's kind of why, like, I love the fact you're doing this for, you know, some of the younger folks and kind of mentoring is um, I didn't learn it until I started seeking more free time. So mm -hmm. I went online, I started to really kind of identify resources online, people like yourself and, you know, like me and other people who have been doing this, really asking them questions, you know, mm -hmm. understanding from them, getting mentoring from them. I think that's helpful. There's a ton of information online, but at the same time, if you have made up your mind, you can basically search anything you want in that frame and it will give you that answer, right? So online searching is really difficult. So for me, it's focusing on people who have been there, done it true and tried formula, I think that tends to help. Okay. And then one more question on the personal finance and almost career track now. 
is what is your one piece of advice for someone who wants to climb up the ladder and hopefully make more money to invest more? What would you tell them to do? I would say look at all the workload you have and really start to figure out uh, from your workload what is the most important um, valuable returns you're going to get from that work. So I'll, I'll give an example. There is Let's say you're working on multiple projects, but one specific project will get you to be noticed and it is more challenging. So focus more on that. And if you have anything else that is just art, is filler work for you, don't work on that. You know, so really kind of think about more important work. And that's challenge, the challenge for you and for the company that will truly hit their bottom line. I think that's mm-hmm. where you make a big impact. I was able to kind of do that in my career as well as just identifying those important projects that ended up delivering one year delivered $80 million worth of savings to target. So, so kind of, kind of working through some of those projects, really get in there, you know, be willing to speak up, you know, take risks. And I think that'll help you kind of move along. I like that. So make sure you really prioritize. And I'm sure after that, have a great feedback loop to your direct reports of saying, Here's how I saved you $80 million. I think I deserve a little <laughs> bit extra. <laughs> yes, yes. That was, a bit, that was very awesome when we were able to do that. And it was only four lines of uh, code change, by the way. So the effort was this much, <laughs> but the outcome. So, so that is like the reality of all the work as well, right? So yeah. it, it's not the, the outcome is never related to the effort. You mm-hmm. have to just be willing to identify the right outcome in what needs to be done and prioritized. Really interesting. Okay, well, let's let's pivot to our last section now. Let's talk a little bit about social media. Your biggest focus right now is LinkedIn, right? Yes, yes. So I love being on LinkedIn. Uh, You know, having been in corporate America for as long as I have, for me, uh, the great thing about LinkedIn is it has people with very similar backgrounds as me, and they kind of understand the struggles that they are going through and then I went through. And my goal is really to help kind of give them some guided tools and steps, you know, along on LinkedIn and kind of, I share content uh, based on that. So what types of posts work best for you on LinkedIn to get engagement and get people into the funnel? Yeah. So I am learning. I'm not as good as you, Josh. So I'm working through that, but you know, one of the things that I see working really well are carousels. I think they're very clean and clear, just, you know, identifying kind of what's the problem and kind of tips and solutions and working through that progression has been really good. So carousel posts, uh, and then how are then, are you transitioning to get them into maybe, do you run online webinars? Do you have a newsletter? What kind of that sales sequence for you? So I do have newsletters. And actually, one thing I was going to share with you is uh, I have recently shared as well uh, a list of 10 questions that is on my website. So feel free to, you know, check out my website. And it basically has um, 10 questions to ask your sponsors before you invest in a deal. Now, you know, I even have allowed some of my investors to start investing at 25000 Usually the minimum for most of these multifamily deals tends to be fifty, mm-hmm. But in certain cases, you can kind of come in and be at a lower uh, number as well. But as you're thinking about it, one of the most common questions I get asked every day is like, how do I know what to ask? So with that in mind, I basically have created a list of top 10 questions. And then that also gives responses to what should you be looking for in their response. And are they giving you the answer, you know, or yeah. are they just making things on the fly? So, I mean, that's a solid lead magnet. You are solving a really big problem, which is it sounds too good to be true. And yeah. I don't even know how to inspect it. So good job. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I actually had my brother-in-law this morning ask me, Hey, somebody is giving me three times what I would invest in. Is that real? And I was like, uh, 
let's let's look at the underwriting together mm-hmm. let's think through it let's talk about it you know it's very hard and a lot of people don't have time to do that so mm-hmm. it does come down to learning you know finding the right partners and people's ability to see is this a person i can trust or can i trust their ability to do due diligence and underwriting so i think that is kind of where, uh, where it's important to know the people you're working with i agree when you look at a multifamily investment presentation, way too many acronyms, too many words that aren't used in everyday right. language, like IRR, like yes. <laughs> outside of the industry, no one will actually yes. know what that means right. or even how to calculate that. So yes. I'm glad that you're simplifying it because I think that definitely needs to happen in the industry. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think that's why index funds do so good because it's almost just, you just pick it and you forget it and you don't have to think. Right. Multifamily, there's a little bit more involved. Obviously, the returns could be very different, but yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things I also share with people is when you're working in multifamily, you know your project team. Mm -hmm. But when you invest in a stock, do you really know the entire executive team and the board members and what decisions they are making? So for me, like that, you know, became challenging. I had invested a bunch in Disney, thinking, "Hey, Disney Plus just launched. It's going to be great. You know, everything is going to go." The stock is half what it was when I purchased, right? So there's just some of those things when you even look at some of the big brands and you go, do I really know what's happening within the company and how are they really moving forward? And that's where, in a way, for me personally, in multifamily, you end up taking a little bit more control and you know the project plan you're going to run, what updates you're going to be making to that building. And then, you know, you had asked me about the asset classes. The class B multifamily, that tends to be, for me, a really good space because you can mm-hmm. really do those updates and provide that value, the forced depreciation. Yeah, there's there's room there. And if you don't know what class A or class B or class C means, you can pause this, Google that really fast, yes. and come on back, because that is something that is very important to know, yeah. regardless if you're buying multifamily or even single family. It's just mm-hmm. universal on that side. So the definitions will change a little bit. Yeah, I love it. Well, let's go into kind of our final round, our last call. So the last questions I ask every single guest, uh, can you share a recent win and a loss from this week? A recent win. So um, I'd say uh, we were able to, so specific to multifamily, and I'll talk about that. Specific for multifamily, we were able to kind of process through all the delinquent uh, renters that we have. And we are kind of at that clean slate where we can take ownership of those empty units at this time mm-hmm. and be able to upgrade them. So that was a huge win uh, from that perspective. The loss is, uh, you know, I am just struggling to find another good deal at this point in time. So I'm day in, day out, you know, sieving through a bunch of deals and the what's out there on the market today is just, uh, there's just not a lot out there. So I think it's just difficult to find uh, deals that will be profitable for myself and for the investors. So we want to make sure, you know, those look good. So that continues to be something that I'm working through. Gotcha. Well, that sounds like that's exactly how someone can maybe help you then. So what is your buying criteria? So my buying criteria for now is uh, Dallas specifically. It's a DFW market. I I do want to stay local. I really believe in this uh, market and area. Class B properties looking at anywhere from 80 over to 150. So somewhere in there, you know, unit property, ideally in a class B or C plus neighborhood, which we can bring up and kind of improve. 
Okay. So if anyone has any of those, definitely let Divya know. Her contacts all linked down below. And at this point, if you are still watching, thank you. Uh, I'll do a quick little family <laughs> reminder. Don't forget to like this video and or rate it wherever you are listening it to. Uh, and if you're on YouTube, please subscribe. We bring on awesome guests like Divya to help share the knowledge. And hopefully you can get a, a, a chunk of wisdom from their stories. My last question for you, not real estate related at all but what was your most memorable drink who was it with and why was it so memorable so um my most memorable drink was um it was a craft stout and i don't remember the exact name of it i love i'm really into beer so like okay. craft beer specifically and it was with my husband and it was on year's eve and uh it was out of the blue he asked me Hey, we've been living in Minnesota for a while. Are you ready to move? <laughs> and uh, my answer was yes. And he's like, well, then let's move. Where are we moving? And uh, I said, New Zealand. And then he had to kind of bring me down from that. It's like, uh, I'm talking within the country. So, so, you know, the conversation got very interesting as the night went on. And, you know, now we live in Texas. So, so that was very memorable because, you know, normally you wouldn't have life altering discussions over a drink and that's kind of what yeah. happened. I love it. Well, that's, that's fun. So then you end up moving straight to Texas. Is that where, where you end up going to? Yeah, I did. Yes. I lived in uh, Minneapolis for 17 years and then I've been in Texas for about four. Okay. And I do also love craft beers too. Stouts once in a while, but I'm really big into yeah. IPAs for sure. And IPAs. IPAs and hazy specifically. Ooh, I like it. Well, Divya, thank you so much for joining us. Just so that people can go ahead and connect with you, where can people find you? So I am on Instagram, so invest with Divya. I think that's the tag you see on. So feel free to kind of follow me there. I'm also on LinkedIn, which I uh, it's my probably preferred method of social media. But then you can also email me at uh, Divya at ascendingavenue.com. And I will get back to you. Uh, my website is uh, ascendingavenue.com as well. So, so multiple ways to find me. And it's always fun connecting uh, on my LinkedIn. You'll also find an option to set up a call with me if that is something you'd want to do. I love it. Well, if you're watching this live, thank you so much. If you're watching this on the post play, all of that will be linked in the description. And by the way, if you made it this far, can you just in the chat put in hazy IPA? I just want to see who made it this far. <laughs> uh, Tivia, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your stories about moving from tech into real estate. Hopefully, I know this will actually help some people. So I appreciate you being on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And for everyone else, make sure to subscribe and follow wherever you're listening to. And I will see you all on the next one. Cheers. Bye.